and uh, hopefully we'll be in there by the 12th of December. Right, Dave? Isn't that right? It's about right. Okay, amen. And uh, thankful for all the hard work that's gone into that. Thank you for being in your place. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving with your family and your friends. And now, full-blown Christmas season is upon us. Somebody asked me when we had our Christmas tree in our house. I said, yeah, I think it was about September the 15th uh, this year. So uh, we love Christmas and start listening to Christmas music uh, roughly January 1st. Uh, each year, so we're excited about that. Let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter number 6. Mark's Gospel, chapter 6. Some of you have asked about uh, the wedding shower. Uh, that will be for Bella. That's next Sunday right after church. And so uh, please make your plans to be staying for uh, Bella and her family as they prepare for their January wedding to Dimitri. We're thankful for them. Also, uh, uh, where Casey and uh, where is Casey? Casey and Andy are going to get married here at church after uh, the service on December twelfth. We're just going to go ahead and do it right there in church, amen. And so uh, then we're going to have a reception for them. I want to encourage you to be out in your place. Exciting to see what God's doing, amen. And so uh, let's be uh, thinking about those things and prayer for those couples. Mark chapter six, as we continue our study of the life of our Lord. We're going to begin reading in verse number 14. Now, I'm going to tell you before I even read this story. Um, you know, if you've ever been on Netflix or Hulu or something like that on, in, a, in an evening of boredom, flipping through trying to find a movie to watch, and you may see something that kind of captures your attention, but then you read the description and read the rating, and you're like, nah, that's just, no, there's, I'm not watching that, no way. Well... This story today would be like flipping through Netflix, seeing the description, seeing what happens, and going, no, I'm not watching that one tonight. So, Merry Christmas, everybody. Uh, <laughs> now, next week we'll start our Christmas series, but I wanted to continue our series. But this is a very, very troubling passage of Scripture. Chapter 6, verse 14. Now... King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known, and he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it is Elijah, and others said, it is the prophet, or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he said, this is John, whom I beheaded, he has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For, John, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for the nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. He swore to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, 
I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, yet because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl and the girl gave it to her mother. When the disciples heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Amen. This is God's word. I want to preach to you this morning this subject, how low can you go? I know this might shock you, but I have never won a game of limbo in my life. You probably took me as a limber and flexible human, but I'm not. You have no doubt played the game or skipped the game. You know what I'm talking about at those once a year or once a decade birthday parties when somebody brilliantly decides to do it at a skating rink. And so you and all your kids go skating and you haven't skated in, well, since the last time somebody had one of those dumb parties. And so you showed up and there you were, roller skating, falling, cleaning the floor with your clothes. And then they decide that they're going to do the limbo. Yeah, you know that one, the limbo where you not only have to skate and try to stay uh, on both skates and without falling, you also have to now duck underneath of an ever-lowing pole. You know the world record for limbo is 8.5 inches off the ground? That's insane. Eight and a half inches. And you know, uh, I, of course, I've never even played the game because I always conveniently skip out or need to go to the bathroom or find something else to do like watch grass grow uh, during those kinds of games. So I don't really play, but lo and behold, you probably would not also be shocked to know that my wife has virtually won every game of limbo she's ever played since she was five. And I've got proof of this on my phone. In fact, last time we were at Christmas, they decided to have one of those uh, gatherings at uh, the skating rink during Christmas in Kansas City. And Angie wasn't just going against adults. She was going against everybody. Every adult, every seven-year-old cousin, every 30-pound five-year-old that can skate. She literally beat everybody and got her famed picture by the limbo queen uh, spray-painted thing on the side of the wall inside of the skating rink. She makes me sick. When they do the limbo, they're always playing that song in the background, How Low Can You Go? And me, it's about 5'7". That's about how low I can go, which means standing straight tall. But you know, we approach our text today, I wish we were talking about the limbo. I wish we were talking about how low physically could you maneuver around a, a rod and a game, but that's not what we're talking about. In fact, what we're reading about in this text is the very lowest form of human depravity to be found anywhere in the entire Bible. What you find here is literally a man, a good man, a godly man, a preacher who is executed in order to appease the debauched heart and mind of an evil woman by the name of Herodias. And yes, you also see a man who had the power to stop it all, but because he was so henpecked 
And because he was so enormously fearful of others, he let it all happen. In our text today, we see John the Baptist lose his life. We see Herod lose his manhood. We see Herodias lose her mind, and we stand in awe at a loss for words. What in the world is going on here? How could something like this happen? And yet, we also see in here a little picture into the heart and mind of man that desperately needs a rescue from the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's go back and look at this story, beginning with, first of all, the confused statement of Herod. This whole thing starts in verse number uh, 16, or excuse me, 14, as the Bible says now, King Herod heard of him. Now, of course, the him there is the Lord Jesus. As I mentioned last time we were in the series, uh, I talked about how that during this particular season in Galilee, during this kind of moment in the author's writing of the life of Jesus, there's a lot of generic things happening. Like last week we looked at Jesus looked at the multitudes and had compassion on them because they were like sheep having no shepherd. Uh, During this time is also when Jesus has just sent out the disciples on a preaching mission. There's a lot of these very general things happening. Jesus has been rejected here. His popularity is increasing here. And now the king, King Herod it says, uh, hears of Jesus and begins to wonder about who Jesus is and it frankly begins to freak him out. Now, let me explain who this King Herod is. Some people have suggested that Mark is actually being sarcastic here when he uses the phrase King Herod. This is not the same Herod in Matthew chapter number 2. This is actually his son. In Matthew chapter 2, there was King Herod the Great. He was actually the ruler over the entire area of Israel during the birth of Jesus Christ. And now that King Herod is gone. And this Herod, his son, has only been given a portion of the oversight that King Herod the Great had. In fact, he was the little, almost like mayor, if you will, of Galilee. In fact, uh, history tells us, Josephus tells us, that this particular Herod, Herod Antipas, actually reached out to Rome and requested that they actually give him the title king, but they actually refused his title as king. And so now this little mayor who thinks he's a king begins to struggle with Jesus and what Jesus... And by the way, I think it's interesting that both of these men, one politically great and one politically small... Both had equal insecurities about Jesus Christ. Do you remember this? In Matthew chapter number 2, when King Herod the Great hears about the birth of the King Jesus, the baby, what does he do? He tries to get the wise men to go look him out, and they turn him down. And so instead of trying to hunt Jesus individually, he goes out and orders the execution of all male children under the age of 2. And that's why Jesus as a child escaped to Egypt for some time. It's just bizarre. And what you find here is you find that Jesus was a political threat. Because when Jesus came preaching, he came preaching repentance and preaching the kingdom of God. And these earthly kings knew that Jesus was a threat to what they thought was a kingdom in their mind that would last forever. But Jesus was a kingdom that was not a kingdom of this world. They just didn't understand it. So so this king, this Herod, is threatened by Jesus, and he misunderstood Jesus, and he tries to come up with an answer of who Jesus is. Look at what it says here. When King Herod heard of him, for his name had become well known, he said, look at this, look at this answer. Who is this guy? Now look at the answer here. John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers aren't working him. Others said, verse 15, it is Elijah, and others said it is the prophet 
or like one of the prophets. Evidently, Herod is so troubled over what is happening in his mind. Maybe he's haunted and having these dreams about the things that he's did to John the Baptist that we'll learn about in a minute. But regardless of why he's thinking this, he's thinking this. And it appears in verse 15 that he has now invited a group of probably advisors in to ask them the question, who do they think he is? Now, the answers that these people are given uh, really are, are fair. Uh, one guy says he's a prophet. Another guy says he's Elijah. But then I think it's interesting that Herod, first of all, thinks he must be John the Baptist risen from the dead. He pulls together these counselors. They offer other opinions. And he says when he heard this, he concluded, no, this has got to be John the Baptist raised from the dead. You know, it's really interesting what people will do to explain away what is obviously in front of them. Hey, folks, obviously the last thing in the world that Jesus was likely to be was John the Baptist raised from the dead, okay? I mean, that would have been the most unlikely of all things that have been said here. But because Herod had so persecuted John, mistreated John, and did something against his own conscience to John, watch this, Herod was haunted by John, and Herod was also haunted by Jesus Christ. Folks, i got to tell you, uh, we live in a world right now that is a bizarre world where people will do anything and everything that they can do to try to explain away who Jesus Christ is. Unbelievers among the political and cultural elite will go to untold lengths to try to explain away or deny the claims of who Jesus Christ is. And folks, i got to tell you, there is one and only answer to that question, who is Jesus? He is the Son of God and God the Son. He is God in the flesh, born of a virgin, lived a sinless, perfect life, and died a substitutionary death on the cross as the only victorious Savior of mankind. That's who Jesus Christ is. Not just a political influencer, not just a revolutionary, not just an interesting teacher, not just a miracle worker, but in fact the Son of God. And if you don't believe that, if you don't believe what I just described to you, there's got to be some and any attempt to explain anything else than what he actually says he is. And to be clear, both John and Jesus were absolutely clear about who Jesus was. Isn't it John himself that said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Isn't he the one that identified him as such? And by this time, Jesus has now well made it clear as to who he was. He has made it clear as to what he did, identifying him as the Son of God. Now this question's haunting uh, Herod, but you know this question was directly asked to one of his disciples just a few chapters later. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi and he asked one of his disciples saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, well, some say John the Baptist and some Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now I want to pin that question on you today. Who do you say that Jesus is? I didn't say, who do you think your pastor said Jesus is? I just already told you who I said that Jesus is. But that, do you, you understand the question here? Post the disciples. The disciples, who do the men say that I am? Well, this guy says this, and this guy says this, and this guy says this. Now the question is directed to them individually. Who do you say that 
I am. It is the question of the ages. In fact, it is the only question in life that really matters. You might have a PhD in some intelligent subject, but I want to tell you right now, if you don't have the right answer to that question, you don't have the answer to the most important question there is to answer in this life. And what does Peter say? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The rock of Jesus, the rock of that statement of who Jesus is, is going to be the thing upon which Jesus will build his church for time and for eternity. This message that I'm preaching to you today, is a message that nobody in this room should be confused about. There is only one right answer to who Jesus is. And you can either leave here confused like Herod, or you can leave here certain like Peter, but you can't leave anywhere else today. Jesus Christ is God. John was sure about it. Peter was sure about it. Jesus was sure about it. Are you? So there's the confusing statement of Herod. Secondly, there are the wicked actions of Herod. The wicked actions of Herod. So basically, beginning in verse number 17, after this confusing statement because of his, his, his conscience bothering him, now almost, in, well not almost, in retrospect, we're going to hear the story that brought about this haunting in Herod's mind. Look at the first words of verse 17. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Here we find what happened to John. And what happened to John is John became the first and original victim of cancel culture. I don't like you. I don't like what you say. So therefore, I'm going to target you, marginalize you, demonize you, and seek to shut you down while I shut you up. This is the culture in which you and I live today. Anybody, anyone that disagrees with anybody in mainstream culture or mainstream politics, the, the, the adverse ref, uh, uh, reaction to that is we're going to do everything in our power to set you on the sideline and make you irrelevant and shut you completely down. Listen very carefully, folks. If you are biblically correct, there will be times that you will be politically incorrect. Why did John get thrown in jail? Because of his preaching. And what exactly did John preach? Let's look at this here. It says here, For John uh, had been bound in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Here it is, right here, verse 18. Because John had said to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now this shows us a little bit of the depravity of Herod here. Herod liked his brother's wife, so what did he do? He committed adultery with her and took her from him, and now he's married to his brother's wife. That's exactly what happened. And the whole time, he has got this voice in the wilderness crying out in his ear, you can't do that, because God says you can't do that. Now, I don't know whether Herod knew the Bible or not. That is irrelevant. By the way, 
You say, well, preach people today in our culture just don't know the Bible, so we got to be careful about how we deal with issues. Whether or not the culture knows the Bible or not, it is the responsibility of God's men to stand up and preach, thus says the Lord, it is written. And John was willing, watch me now, John was willing to stand in a hostile culture, watch this, in a sexually evolved culture. Y'all ain't even hearing me this morning. In a culture of people that have literally taken right and, or wrong and turned it into right and taken right and turned it into wrong and taken absolutes and put question, come on, put question marks where God has put exclamation points. He was willing to stand and say, you're not supposed to do that because that's wicked and it's wicked because God said so. My soul this morning, may the tribe of John the Baptist increase in this day. May we be willing, not in an ugly spirit, not because we're angry, not because um, we have a hatred toward people, but because the truth of the word of God is at stake. May we still be willing in this day as far away from God and as far far away from truth and as far away from morality as we have come, may we still be willing to speak out to the issues like John the Baptist was willing to speak out. I just want to say this. Sins of human sexuality have always been a biblical issue. This is not a new issue. Adultery is not new. Fornication is not new. Homosexuality is not new. It's all in the word of God. In fact, it's troubling to me, honestly, the way people are capitulating on things that should be so simple and so obvious in the Bible. And look, I know there are denominational issues that people have to face, but I want to tell you one thing that is to be clear, that there should be absolutely zero tolerance of these kinds of things in church, in the pulpit, in our doctrinal statements. We must be clear where God is clear on such issues. In fact, this week, Thanksgiving week, I was frankly shocked to see a very prominent Baptist pastor uh, on social media on November 22nd and 23rd uh, sharing a video of his son, who is a homosexual elder at a church in New York City, preaching the gospel, proclaiming that his son was being faithful to the gospel and the second coming in a YouTube sermon that he posted on a social media. I took the time on Tuesday morning to listen to every word of the sermon from start to finish. Every word of the sermon from start to finish that was neither faithful to the gospel nor faithful to the second coming of Jesus Christ nor faithful to the truth of the Bible that tells us that homosexuality is a sin and nobody that is a practicing homosexuality should be a pastor of a church or an elder in a congregation. Somebody better help me up here. This is just plain, simple truth from the Bible. I will not endorse it. I will not celebrate it. I will not act like it's okay. And in a day where there's so much confusion, I think I might as well just scratch off a line in the sand and just tell you what the Bible says. It says the following things are true. Homosexuality is a sin against God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that unrighteous people will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals will have a place in the kingdom of God. And that's not Old Testament. That's not Leviticus. That is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And I could spend the rest of the sermon on this if I wanted to. I want to say secondly, extramarital sexual activity is still a sin against God. It's called adultery in the Bible. Exodus chapter 20 verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Proverbs chapter 6 verse 32, whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. He that does it destroys his own soul. 
Adultery is when somebody who is married steps out on their spouse and commits a sexual act with somebody that they are not married to. Listen to me very carefully. It don't matter if everybody in the office does it. It doesn't matter if everybody in the, in the business place does it. It's still sin against God. Premarital sexual activity is a sin. That is, sexual relationships with somebody before you are married is a sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, flee sexual immorality. Every man, every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Hebrews 13, verse 4, marriage is honorable in every way, and the bed is undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. This is plain, folks. This is plain text. This is not confusion. It's not like there's any room for a vacillation or manipulation or question here. These are just plain statements from the Bible. Listen very carefully. God says those are all sin and listen to me they are still sin today if you believe God's word then you will believe it is a sin this is not some archaic message that was only relevant in a cultural that was fundamentally heterosexual and monogamous it is a eternal truth from the Bible that we must believe preach and practice today so not only do we see here that the sins of human sexuality have always been a biblical issue? The second thing we see here is that truth from the Bible may not always be culturally acceptable. Look at verse number 19. Therefore, Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard these things, he did many things and heard him gladly. And I'll talk about that in just a minute. Therefore, an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles, the high officers, and the chief men of Galilee. Watch this. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced, it pleased Herod and the other men here. Folks, I'm not just talking about one act of sin here. I'm talking about somebody that was dyed in. the. Hey, come on. The sponge was soaked up with iniquity. One man said it like this. This woman cared more about the head of John the Baptist than she did the dignity and reputation of her teenage daughter. She prostituted her daughter as an erotic dancer at a high fluting political gathering and used her. Folks, I don't know if there's anything lower in the whole Bible than what I just read before you. I don't know if there could possibly be anything worse than what I just read here. This isn't just one thing that Herodias and her, her mom and, and this woman and these people did. This is, not, this is far worse than that. This is a pervasive cultural issue. In fact, it shows us here the, the issue is in her heart. Verse number 18, again 19, her, her, her Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him. It's amazing what people will do when they have bitterness in their heart against someone else. I mean, this is extraordinary. The links that she will go, the things that she will do. Can you imagine what when when when, her, when, the, when the daughter comes back and says, "Hey, look, Herod's and Herod said I can have anything. Watch this, up to half of the kingdom." What do you think I should ask him? Think about this mother saying this. Yeah, just ask for the head of John the Baptist, and then and then and then just think of how evil even the teenager is to go right out and say, "Yep, that's a great idea. Let's go do that." This is. As low as you could possibly go. 
Those who preach the truth may very well experience hatred and persecution from powerful people. She held it against John. She sought occasion to kill John. She went after John. She wanted John dead. And this is exactly what we should and can't expect to experience from people in high places. You know, the Bible does say there is spiritual wickedness in high places, that there is demonic footholds in governmental authorities. It's in the Bible. And should let us all know that we ought to be very careful and aware of the fact that the majority of uh, political powers in this world are not for the church and they're not for God. And we can expect that this bitterness and hatred toward Christ and toward others would come upon the church. You know, it's funny how, though we sometimes, what we think persecution is, we think persecution is being mandated to take a vaccine. Friends, check the clue box. That is not persecution. It's certainly not spiritual persecution. And when you start stacking it up against people that are facing like real persecution, like the 14 people every day that die in foreign countries because they're Christians, let's not call our little shot mandate persecution. I'm thinking of Shabazz Badi, he's age 42, the only Christian who was serving in Pakistan's political cabinet. On March the 2nd, 2011, he was brutally murdered when four gunmen sprayed his body with gunfire. Al-Qaeda claimed responsibility for his assassination and a note from the terrorist network and said the attack was a fitting lesson to the world of infidelity. The crusaders, the Jews, and their aides. This is a fitting end of the accursed one which will serve as an example to others. And now with the blessing and aid of Allah, the Muhajideen uh, will send all of you one by one to hell. That's what they think about people that follow Jesus Christ. That's what they do to people that follow Jesus Christ. Guys, we have got to get a worldwide scope on what the Bible is teaching us here. The Bible is plainly teaching us that if we're not careful, we will will be victim to the persecution that comes because of the preaching of the word of God. So he he was in prison for his preaching, but he was beheaded because of the pressure that came upon him. You know, at least Herod knew the truth. If you look down at verse number 20, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. This is interesting. And when he heard him, look at this little phrase here, he did many things, many translations Uh, use the word perplexed here. And I think that's an interesting word. It literally, the the word itself has to do with confusion, questioning, being flipped back and forth between two ideas. You know what it means? It means Herod was under conviction from the words of John, but he didn't know what to do. He did many things. Like like one minute he follows Herod, or he follows his family. He's like, yeah, that's right. And then the next minute he's thinking about what John said, so he's over here kind of confused back and forth. A lot of people are like that. But it wasn't that, G- that Herod did not know the truth. It is that he had to suppress the truth for the sake of others. Verse 17 says he did it for Herodias. Verse 26 says he did it for the crowd. Now watch very carefully. If you know the truth, but you continue to vacillate between the truth because of fear, you will ultimately be trapped. And ultimately, when he said, I'll give you up to half of the kingdom, his lips wrote a check that his life did not want to cash. And being trapped by the fear of man, he took John's life because of pressure. It is a legitimate thing that men of God, women of God, have been in prison, beaten and tortured for their faith. I think of John Bunyan in the 1600s, the great preacher that wrote the Pilgrim's Progress. You realize that he was in prison for 12 years and could have at any 
moment been released from prison if he would have only said to the governor of that area in Bedford, England, I will not preach the gospel of Christ. He had a wife who had four children. In fact, she was the stepmother of the four children. His first wife died. His daughter Mary was blind. They were impoverished. And he could have got out at any time and got his job again and paid for it and taken care of his family again. But he did it. Why? On conviction, on conscience, on truth. I'm not going to preach this, what you're expecting me to preach. I'm going to preach the Bible. This was during the Reformation. This is when the churches were separating from the state churches. And the nonconformists were preaching the Bible without the sanction of the government authority. And for 12 years, it wasn't until there was an, a, a declaration of religious indulgence in 1672 that he was actually released. Here's a man of God, friends, that is not buried in, 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 uh, in, in, the, in the famous fields of, of Abbey there in England, but is buried in, in Bunhill Fields, uh, an old almost junkyard graveyard where the nonconformists were buried. And I thank God for this preacher that stood for something even though a society was completely engulfed in evil. The final thing I want you to see this morning is this. I want you to see the impact of John's loved ones. You see, there's another kind of low that is represented in this passage. There's certainly the low morals of Herod and Herodias and their family. But the second low that you see is the low morale of the disciples. This is the first... This is the preview. This is the first fruits of what literally every one of these men except for Judas is going to face. Now the Bible says in verse number 29, his disciples heard of it. They came and took his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Verse 30 tells us, then the disciples gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. Over in Matthew chapter 14, verse 12, it tells us that they went directly and told Jesus about John's death as well. I want you to see all this coming together. You see, you see the disciples who've just been out on a preaching mission. Then you see, then you see um, John dies. And now the disciples come whipped and tired and dragging Back to Jesus, saying, Lord, this is what's happened. Lord, this is what has taken place. And watch what Jesus does here in verse number 31. And he said to them, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place and rest a while. Don't you love that? Man, I love that. Jesus knew where they were. He knew they needed rest. He knew they were hurting. He knew they were struggling. And instead of pushing them on to the next activity and trying to whip them up into a frenzy, he acknowledged the need. And he said, you guys are low right now. It's time for us to rest. Rest means to be caused to permit one to cease from any movement or labor in order to recover or recollect his strength. Do you know really in, in our country today, very few people rest well. When do you need to rest? When you're too busy and you're broken. Where do you need to rest? Alone. Come by yourselves to a desert place. How to rest? Collect yourself. You need to rest physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. There are times when you just need to pull aside. There's busy people. There's busy business owners. There's busy mothers. There's busy 
businessmen in the church. There's people who are busy with bad news and the world is swirling around you and things are complicated. Your mind is hurting. You're, you're physically exhausted and drained. You're spiritually as low as you've been. You're emotionally about to fall apart. I'm glad to tell you when that is true, there's only one place to come. Just like the disciples did. They came to Jesus. The same one that said in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Come to me, all you who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. One of the greatest burdens that people do carry is the spiritual burden of trying to be what you can never be. The song in Christ alone has that phrase. When fears are stilled and strivings ceased. When strivings cease. Striving to do, striving to be, striving with the guilt of your own sin that you're trying to carry. Striving with trying to be perfect in a world in which you will never be. Striving to overcome sin and habits and brokenness. On your own. You can't. But there's one person that you can come to. And you can lay your burden down on him. That burden has already been carried to Calvary. That sin's already been paid for. That life has already been offered to you in Jesus Christ. So today, you can repent of your sin. You can cease from your striving. You can enter into the rest of Jesus Christ who alone can give it. Let's pray together if we could.